Well, if you would uh, turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter 9. Um, and for the sake of context, I'm going to read, uh, let's say, uh, verses 1 through 3 and then 20 through 27. But the sermon is going to focus on verses 24 through 27. So this is from Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And now in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. What do you hold most dear in your heart? Uh, What is there in your life that would make you feel like life just isn't worth living if it were taken away? Or what are you striving to achieve that would make your life feel like a waste if you didn't attain it? Now, we talked about last time Daniel's response to Jeremiah's prophecy and how it reveals Daniel's earnest love for the city of God and the worship that happened in the temple. We see this reflected in Daniel's prayer of repentance with its appeal to God's mercy to restore the city and to restore the temple. And also we see that Daniel still remembers the time of the evening sacrifice. And so it's been nearly 70 years after his arrival in Babylon, and yet he marks time 
by the daily schedule of the temple. And so maybe Daniel's message to him, or sorry, Gabriel's message to Daniel comes as a little bit of a shock. For, for Gabriel tells him, yes, the city and the temple will be rebuilt. But then the city will once again be destroyed and the temple with it. And then there's no indication given after that that there will be another restoration of the city and temple. So can, can, you, can you imagine? Can you imagine how, how Daniel just shows that all his life he's faithful to God in Babylon, but he longs to be back home in Jerusalem. He loved that city. It's where he learned to love and serve God, but God shows him that this is only temporary. Now, I don't know what each of you personally holds most dear. Um, I know some of you well enough I might be able to guess, but I don't know. You know, I know that for myself, I treasure rest most of all. And depending on how I'm expressing that love, sometimes it reflects God's purposes for his people, and sometimes it doesn't. But here's the thing. Whatever you treasure, even if you treasure something really good and really God-honoring, God's purpose of redemption is not limited to what you hold most dear. Your horizons for God's purpose of redemption are much too limited. And yet, that won't stop God for giving you all that he has in store for you and the rest of the people uh, uh, of God. For Daniel's love for the holy city and Daniel's love for the temple, they were appropriate and they were God-honoring. And so God isn't rebuking Daniel in his vision. He's just showing Daniel that his purposes involve so much more than Daniel ever could have dreamed of. And so even for you, if your horizons are too small, God still longs and loves to give you everything that he has in store for his people. So let's look at that fact through the lens of Daniel's vision. And so we're going to look at three aspects of this passage. First, we're, we're going to look at the probable historical referent of, of this vision, of this interpretation uh, of history that Gabriel gives to Daniel. But second, we'll look at the temporary role of the temple and the city. And finally, we're going to look at the permanent role of God's anointed one. Uh, so first, let's have a sort of a brief overview of the real-world history that this vision refers to. And um, this, this might be the trickiest passage in the Bible. Um, the, the, I think, 19th century commentator James Montgomery uh, called this specific passage, these, these, these four verses, the dismal swamp of Old Testament interpretation. Um, and to this day, uh, lots and lots of believers will, will actually judge uh, a commentary or a preacher or a sermon solely on the basis of of how specifically they interpret this vision. Um, and so I read in, in Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on Daniel, he told the story of, uh, I, I think he was Scottish, the Scottish uh, uh, commentator uh, and pastor, Alexander White. So he had a standing order from his, his bookseller or his local bookstore. Uh, just sell, bring, bring me any 
Romans commentary that comes in, that you hear of being published. And whenever he got one, he would open it up and turn to Romans chapter 17, verses 14 through 25. And if the commentator did not interpret those few verses as referring to Paul's personal experience, he'd send it back and say, oh, this isn't the book for me. And there there are those who do that same sort of thing with interpretations of this passage. But that's kind of misguided for a few reasons. First of all, the section is really brief. Um, and the correct understanding of this specific passage among sort of, there's like three or four options that have been put forward by different commentators. The correct understanding of the whole book of Daniel really doesn't hang on exactly how you interpret this one passage. Second, the New Testament doesn't ever refer specifically to this section of Scripture. Uh, Even Jesus' reference uh, to the abomination of desolation appears to have more to do with Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 than the verse in this particular passage. And so if this were absolutely, like the correct interpretation of this were absolutely critical to having an overall correct biblical theology, we would have expected the apostles to comment on it and explain it. But here, I think, is the biggest reason. Chapter 9 of Daniel's, of Daniel's book has a larger significance than the specific interpretation of this passage. You know, this is a passage that majors in repentance and restoration and shows how God has a particular plan to bring about that restoration. And we can see that that's happened right? We can see how these themes are developed not only in Daniel, but also in the rest of Scripture. And so if you, if you think that this, uh, these 70 weeks refer to the time from uh, Cyrus's edict to Christ's resu- crucifixion and resurrection, as I do, that doesn't change the overall message compared to some of the people who say, think that that seventh week extends even now to the year 2021 and, and until Christ's return. Uh, The overall message of God's specific plan and purpose for history isn't affected, regardless of what way you interpret this specific passage. But I still think that it's worth it to come to some firm conclusions about this vision, because it's worth it. Um, It's worth it, first of all, simply for the exercise of seeking to understand God's word. God's word rewards looking at it carefully because God enlightens the eyes of our hearts so that we can understand it. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and also in Ephesians. Um, God is faithful to give his spirit to his people as we, in, in, uh, as we seek to understand his word well. Uh, and God can do his work in us even if we don't always understand it perfectly clearly. We can grow in that process anyway. Uh, but it also, I, like the, the desire to understand exactly what happened in history that's reflected here also is an outworking of our faith that God follows through on what he promises. We believe, and we should believe, that this, this prophecy either has been or is going to be fulfilled by God. 
And so it's an expression of faithfulness of, uh, to God, an expression of trust that he will follow through on every promise when we seek to understand these things. Um, so there's a lot happening in, in these few verses. I'm going to try to make it relatively brief, but it's hard, so please bear with me. <laughs> um, so we, we have here in verse 25 this reference to the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. And you know, this is a word ultimately from God. It's God who, put, who, who desolated Jerusalem. It's God who causes it to be built and restored again. But that word from God, that decree of God, has to be put into practice, has to be put into effect in the world. So I, I believe that this refers to Cyrus's edict of 538, in which he orders the people to return to Jerusalem uh, and, uh, and to begin rebuilding the city and temple. So next, we have this reference to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. Who, who is typically anointed in Scripture? Well, we see two kinds of characters who are anointed, priests, and kings. And actually, the emphasis is on priests being anointed, but as we even heard this morning, kings also are anointed. Um, and, and so the reference here is to some character who comes to fulfill both priesthood uh, and kingship. And I can only think of one person in history who did that, and that's Christ. So, we have this going out of, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, the ESV translation renders it rather differently than I just said it. Um, and, and, and here's why. Uh, the ESV says, um, there shall be seven, so from, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, period. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat. And what I'm proposing instead is that from the going out of the word to the coming of the anointed one is seven weeks and 62 weeks. And here's why. So the, the ESV divides the seven weeks and the 62 weeks into separate sentences. And they do this partly on the basis of a mark that was added uh, by the Masoretes. Now, the Masoretes were Jewish uh, rabbis and scholars uh, in, the, in the early to middle, middle ages um, who added a lot of marks to the text of the Old Testament so that the pronunciation and the interpretation could be retained and passed down accurately of the scriptures. Um, one of those marks divides verses in the Hebrew scriptures into even halves. It's called an afnach. Uh, if you, that's, there's not a quiz on that, but uh, that's what it's called. And, but you've got to remember that these marks um, are not part of the original, original texts. Uh, and when you look at the Hebrew of this passage, if you just take away all those marks, all that you're left with is just this, um, you know, from, from the going out of the word to the coming of the, an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And that's it. 
There's another reason, though. The way that the ESV has this divided up is that uh, it says that for 62 weeks it shall be built again. Um, The form of that number of weeks 62, uh, it would be extremely unusual for that number in this particular form to be used to express uh, a duration of time during which something else happens. It ra- so rather, it just ex- so th- it's part of this expression of an extent of time with two endpoints, but not reflecting the duration during which something else happens. Uh, and so what I believe that we see happening here is that it's a sum total of 69 weeks, uh, a time between, at one end, at the beginning end, is the word to restore Jerusalem, and at the other end is the coming of the anointed uh, uh, prince, which then is divided into a shorter and a longer period of time. Again, lots of people smarter than me take the exact approach that I just took. Lots of people smarter than me take a very different approach. Um, But we're all seeking to understand God's word faithfully. And so we have then, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Um, This refers to a complete restoration of the rebuilding of the holy city, but also that there's affliction and challenge and difficulty during that building process. And I mean, all you need to do is turn to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to see this taking place. It it was a very challenging work, and, and it didn't even happen all at once. It took uh, it took a period of, of uh, some uh, almost a hundred years for it to be fully completed, and there were many interruptions in the labor. So now we turn to verse 26, where it says, After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, this anointed one is uh, referring to the same uh, anointed prince uh, that we saw in verse 25. And this reference to cut off. So the anointed one is going to be cut off, which is the fate of the ungodly. It refers to the death penalty. And so this anointed one will be cut off, and he shall have nothing. So think of all everything that the anointed one is entitled to. Uh, God's anointed priest and prince, he's left without honor. He's left without a people. He's left without his life. Everything that he has is taken away from him. And so it continues that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And this is most likely referring to the Romans and Titus Vespasianus destroying the city and the sanctuary in 70 AD. So these are people who, who come, just as it says in Daniel 1.1 that Nebuchadnezzar came, and destroyed the temple, and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And so there's this hostile force that comes uh, after the conclusion of this sixty, or at the conclusion of the sixty-two weeks, and uh, and the cutting off of the anointed prince. And its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, its end, the, the its end here is most likely referring to the end of the destruction of the city. And so this picture of total destruction of the city is given. 
It's not a, a passing invasion that leaves the city intact but under a new status quo. It, the city is destroyed, as we know that in uh, A.D. 70, uh, Jerusalem was, was burnt basically to the ground in, during the siege of Jerusalem in 70. So we move on to verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Um, Again, a little bit of, a, of an odd translation, and I'm not, I'm not dragging anybody who's much smarter than me, but uh, it, it would probably be better translated, and he shall cause a covenant to prevail with many for one week. Now, he is the priest, prince, messiah. Um, it's unlikely that that he, that pronoun, would refer to the prince who is to come because the prince who is to come is not the main actor in verse 26. His people are described as, like they're in the grammatical position of being the main actors in verse 26. And his people are plural, but this verb here is in the singular. And so the most likely reference is to the anointed one. And it's really important to note here that he does not make a new covenant because that's not what the Hebrew tells us. The Hebrew, if it were to make a covenant, would say the Hebrew would say he cut a covenant. But instead it says he causes the covenant to be strong or to prevail. So this anointed prince puts into, or puts into force a covenant that has already been made. And he does it for many, not for the whole nation of Israel, simply for many. Then it goes on to say, for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Um, and, and Edward Young talks about how this is better translated in the middle of the week. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So in the middle of this time, by fulfilling the covenant, Messiah will end the sacrificial system of the temple. I mean, we see this in Hebrews 8.13. The sacrifices are no longer legitimate. And so the city's destruction is just the outward manifestation of this fact, right? So this is similar to how Cyrus's edict is the outward manifestation of God's edict to restore the city. Well, this, the destruction of the city and temple in, in 70 is simply the outward manifestation of the fact that God now, after Christ, considers the entire sacrificial system to be illegitimate and idolatrous. And so it says, on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Now the wing, we, we don't use this this way anymore, um, but the wing here is the pinnacle of the temple. And in fact, in, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where, where you, know, you would have read that, that Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and said to, to throw himself off, uh, the literal Greek translation of that even would be, and, and Satan took him to the wing of the temple, to, to the height of the temple. So on the wing of abominations, the abominations being the, the sacrificial system itself, the idolatrous worship after Jesus' sacrifice, shall come one who makes desolate, and that's Titus, uh, who makes this desolate. And again, in, we go on, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, and, and here, um, I think the Hebrew is more accurately rendered, until the decreed end 
is poured out on the desolated. Um, it's a passive verb in the Hebrew. I don't know why it's not a passive verb here. Um, but the, the verb translated desolator here is, is in the passive voice. And so a full end is poured out on the desolated city. And so the sacrificial system is actually not to be revived. So here's the summary. Uh, and I, I normally don't like to go on that long about such things, but you see how I kind of needed to show my work. <laughs> um, it, here's the summary, though. God's edict went out to restore Jerusalem, which was, and this edict was put into effect in the world through Cyrus's edict. And so for a period of a total of 69 weeks, which in history is divided into shorter and longer periods, I believe, uh, that for the first seven weeks, a complete restoration of the city takes place despite opposition to the work. And then there's a longer period of waiting before those 62 weeks elapse where Messiah comes and he puts into force a covenant already promised. But he does this by his death. For his death fulfills the purpose of the sacrificial system and makes the continuation of the sacrificial system idolatrous. And so God puts a full end to the sacrificial system by a complete destruction of the city at the hands of an invading army. And that sacrificial system is not to be reinstated. So that's a description of, of a likely real-world referent of this vision. Uh, and I, I have to acknowledge a pretty great debt to Edward Young, the uh, early, mid-20th century commentator. In this, he, his, uh, uh, it's, it's a somewhat older commentary these days, but uh, it is uh, chock full of great insights into the exegesis of the passages of Daniel. Um, but here's the thing, regardless of understanding every last detail of this, of this vision perfectly, the main point remains that the city and the temple were only temporary. And yet, despite this temporary nature, the city and the temple played an important role in the history of salvation. And so Daniel was right to love the city and to love the temple. For consider what they represented. The city is representative of God's presence among his people. Psalm 46.4 calls the city the holy habitation of the Most High. A city also represents protection, magnified by the fact that the Lord himself was there to protect his people in it. Uh, Nehemiah is very concerned with rebuilding the city wall. But there's two walls being erected. If you look carefully at Nehemiah, there's the city wall, the physical city wall, but also the wall of separation between God's holy people, or maybe not separation, but distinction between God's holy people and, uh, and, and those who worship idols among the nations. And so the city has important significance in God's plan of salvation. And the temple is the place where God's presence is most concentrated. For the people come to this, and the, the people come to the city to present their offerings to God. They come to experience His peace when they make a sin offering. They experience His fellowship when they make a grain offering. And so, worship at the temple 
was, was an important, in an important sense, what makes God's people, God's people. And it was there that he made manifest his forgiveness of their sins as the sinner lays their hands on the head of the sacrificial animal, transferring the liability for their sins to that animal. And yet the sinner walks away purified. And so the city and the temple are good things. God worked through them for the time that he appointed for them. And so Daniel is right to love them and to long for their restoration. But God does show Daniel that the city and temple were only temporary. And so even though they'll be rebuilt for a time, they'll be torn down again, according to God's own plan and his own purpose. God doesn't intend them to be the permanent provision for his people. And it's often the same way with each one of us. For many of the things that we want are good. Many of the things we want may even have their place in God's plan of redemption. So what is it that you love deep in your heart? Do you love a particular style of worship service? Do you love having a good reputation? Do you love safety, security, providing a good education for your kids? Maybe you love theology itself. I saw a really good meme a few weeks ago. This, in the, this, there's a few guys sitting at a classy bar having a laugh, and the caption reads, the bros getting together for a beer in the new heaven and new earth now that we're all Presbyterian. Well, I don't know if you love beer or if you love your bros or Presbyterian more than anything, um, but I can tell you in the life to come, your bros will be there. Uh, I, I think, I don't know about beer or not, maybe, maybe not. I'm pretty sure Presbyterianism won't be there. I mean, unless Presbyterian really is perfect, which I very much doubt. And yet, there's no question that many of these things you might love are perfectly good. Good theology is a good thing. God-honoring worship services are a good thing. But if these are the things you love most of all, you should reconsider where your love lies and where it ought to lie. For the city and temple were at the center of God's plan for his people during their time. And yet they only had a temporary place in God's plan for all of history. And so God was teaching Daniel that there's something to love even more. And it's very interesting to notice that Daniel, in a change of pace, does not report that he's distressed at this vision. Other visions he's had have left him perplexed and shaken, sometimes even sick for weeks. But this time he reports no distress, even though it foretells the destruction of the city and the temple he loves so much. Now Daniel doesn't record his celebration of the eventual destruction of city and temple. He still loves them and as long as they're there to be restored, he should. But his lack of dismay at their, the eventual fate of city and temple shows that his loves are rightly ordered, that he loves God and his purpose much, much more than he loves the city and temple specifically. So what is it that we're supposed to look to more permanently? Put simply, it's the work of the anointed one and the covenant he causes to prevail for his people. 
For God has a purpose for his people. And as we talked about in the last time I preached, in verse 24, he talks about the things that he will accomplish for his people. For where the plan is to ultimately destroy the city, the plan is also to uphold God's covenant and his people. So we, we see this plan, for example, in verse 24. It, it says that there's a plan to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. Um, the, this is a, the, the end to the transgression in particular is a reference to the, tra- the transgression that Daniel has just confessed, which is the, the hallmark of which is his people's refusal to hear God's word and to obey it. And so you think of things like God's promise to write his law on the hearts of his people in the new covenant he promises through Jeremiah. So God will bring to an end the condition where his people simply don't listen to his word. But not only that, God will seal up sin. God will restrain the power of sin to oppress. For sin is an oppressor. Sin enslaves you. Sin makes you so much less than you ought to be. For God made you for a purpose. He made you to be free. Free to pursue all that you ought to be in faithfulness to him. So if you look deep within yourself, you know that there's something that keeps you from being all that you long to be, and that something is sin. But where sin pulls you away from God and has your worst interests at heart, God has defeated sin, and he liberates you to be faithful to him, to be your best self, to be who you want, who you were made to be. And even when you do fall short, and I promise you, you will fall short. I'll, I'll sign up, I'll sign that petition that says David falls short every day. God also reveals his decree to cover up your sins in his sight. That's what the word behind to atone for sin refers to. It refers to a covering. And we know that Christ's blood covers your sins in God's sight so that you... Uh, are no longer separate from him. And in doing all of this, it says that God brings in everlasting righteousness. This is not a righteousness that is found within you. It's brought in from outside you. It's God's own righteousness. The righteousness that Daniel prays about earlier in verse 9. So this is the kind of righteousness that leads God to be merciful and to apply his own righteousness to you but it's not a righteousness that comes from within you. There's this reference to sealing both vision and profit. And this is where things get, I think, particularly juicy, perhaps, for Daniel. For the usual mode of revelation in the Old Testament is a vision given to the prophet from God. But God promises a future for his people in which vision and profit will no longer be necessary because the prophetic visions are fulfilled. And God's people will live in the reality of what those visions foretold. And finally, it says to anoint a most holy place. It's accomplished in the anointing of a holy of holies. But that can't refer to the most holy place within the temple, the holy of holies within the temple. For every time in the Old Testament that's referred to, it's referred to not as a holy of holies, 
but the Holy of Holies. And so God has something, or has maybe you think I'm about to say someone, to anoint as most holy. And all of this leads to the conclusion that the focal point of this decree lies in that anointed prince who comes at the end of the 69 weeks and the covenant he causes to prevail in the 70th week. For we know only one person in all history has been anointed as both priest and king and who fulfilled all that the prophets foretold. It's Jesus. He fulfills the covenant. He makes it unbreakable. And through his faithfulness to God, he fulfilled the covenant and he applies it to you by your faith. And so consider how his humiliation and exaltation have fulfilled God's decrees for his people. For Jesus in his death dealt absolutely with sin. He paid the price for the sins of all his people. He suffered God's just wrath so that if you entrust yourself to him in faith, your debt is completely forgiven by God. You are set free from, God's ins- from sin's enslaving power. And Jesus' absolute righteousness is credited to your account in God's sight. Jesus is also the fulfillment of all that the prophets foretold. For John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Hebrews, we read that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. And so in Jesus, we have not visions of God's purpose but we have the reality. And Jesus is the most holy of holies anointed by God, for as Ephesians writes, he is the cornerstone of the dwelling place for God that's comprised of his saints and built up by the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus do this? Well, just as Daniel held certain things very dearly, Jesus did too. And more than anything in the world, he loved his heavenly Father and put this love into practice by his obedience. He says so in John 14, but he also loved you, his people. For as he says in John, as it says in John 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' love for his people led him to the cross, where he gave himself up for you. Now, there are plenty of good things in, his, in this life. Many of you might be familiar with the story of Eric Little, the Scottish missionary, Olympic champion, and a subject of the, of the film Chariots of Fire. And he loved to run. And you may know the famous quote from the movie. I'm not 100% sure if he actually said this in the real world, but he said it in the movie. He says, God made me for a purpose but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Whether these exact words were uttered by him or not, they're a great representation of his love for running, which you you can read about. It's all over his his books. But you know what's even more all over his books? His love of God and his love of seeing lost people come to faith in God. For he said later in life, It's been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. 
If you read any of his writings, you can see the love of God just dripping off the page. No doubt he glorified God in his running, and he could have kept his athletic career going to the glory of God. But he loved God enough to obey God's call to the mission field. And he had confidence that God would follow through on all of his promises. So what about you? God has made tremendous promises to you out of his deep love for you. He's made these promises a reality in Christ. But what do you love? Do you love good, even godly things in this life? If God were to snatch them away and give you something even better, what would you think? Would you be content with what he has given? And I think if all of us are honest with ourselves, we find that there are many things we love more deeply than God himself and his purpose of salvation for us. There have even been times when I've had to ask myself, do I love God? Or do I love opportunities to preach his word and opportunities to speak one-on-one with people about how his word applies to their lives? None of us can probably say that our loves are yet put in their proper order. But Jesus had his loves perfectly ordered. And his perfectly ordered loves are credited to your account by God. And not only that, by his Holy Spirit, he is working to change you and to make your loves more perfectly ordered as you go through life. So don't despair. For God eagerly desires to make you perfect. And if you trust in Christ, he's doing it in your life now. Progress might be up and down at times, but it's going to happen. And one day, when Jesus returns, your love for God will be made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you for the gift of your love expressed through Christ's sacrifice for us and the Holy Spirit's application of it and transformation of our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you will send us out of here loving you better and loving the things that you love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.